like to begin this evening's talk by speaking about how to listen to Dharma talks. When the Buddha talked of the development or cultivation of different perfections of mind, those things which are called paramis, that is the development of generosity and morality and virtue and wisdom, he placed both the listening to a Dharma talk and the giving of a Dharma talk in the category of meditation rather than in the category of generosity or giving. Because if we know how to listen properly, the words themselves assume a tremendous power in the mind. Words have power if we can open to them. So I think it's important, especially for advanced yogis like yourselves, to use the time of listening to a Dharma talk as meditation. And that means listening to the words with attention, with care, and with openness, so the words actually enter into one's heart or one's mind, rather than stay on the surface or on that level on which we think about them, or discuss them, or evaluate. Because that's just more of the discursive process. But if we open ourselves, then one word is enough to liberate the mind. And there are many stories, as we've told in the last retreat and in different courses, how very often in the Buddhist time, up until the present, a verse would be uttered, or a particular elaboration of a teaching, and a particular person or a group of people or multitudes of people would actually be enlightened in the moment of listening. So with that as a preface, tonight I'd like to speak about the factors of enlightenment. The purpose of practice, the deepest purpose, is to come to that understanding of oneself, one's understanding of the nature of the mind, the nature of experience. Come to that understanding through an intuitive awareness and an intuitive balance which allows the mind to go beyond itself to open to the unconditioned, to become free, to become liberated. One of the clearest expressions of the path or the way of creating that balance of mind out of which the opening happens was described or explained by the Buddha in his teachings of the seven factors of enlightenment. Seven mental factors, seven mental qualities which have to be developed and cultivated and matured. And when those seven qualities are brought into the proper balance, the proper maturity, out of that the possibility of enlightenment happens. What are these seven factors or seven qualities of enlightenment? The first one, and the one that is the keystone, or the cornerstone of all the rest, is mindfulness. As you sit and listen to these factors, listen to them as a way of experiencing them. 
And it's in that way that the words enter into the deepest part of one's experience. Mindfulness. What does mindfulness mean? It means noticing carefully. It means a full and penetrating attention. There's another factor of mind called attention, which points to the difference between a superficial attention and the quality of mindfulness, which is a penetrating recollectedness of what it is that's happening in the moment. Mindfulness has a depth and a penetrating power to the noticing. It's a noticing that goes deep, that touches directly and intimately at the point of contact every moment's experience. Mindfulness. The Buddha gave several discourses in which he elaborated the path leading to freedom. They're called the Discourses on the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, Satipatthana. And it describes very succinctly and very, very profoundly the power and the scope of this particular mental quality. The four foundations of mindfulness, it's what we're practicing. The first of these foundations is mindfulness of the body. Taking this physical body, these physical elements, and making them the object of awareness. Making them the object of our deep and considered attention. So when we're focusing on the breath, the breath is physical. Either the sensation of the air going in and out of the nostrils, or the movement of the chest or of the abdomen, the sensation of that movement. When we walk, it's mindfulness of the body. When we reach for something, mindfulness of the body. When we eat, when we go to the bathroom, when we take a shower, when we stand up, when we sit down, there's one whole technique of vipassana which focuses the mindfulness simply on the different postures that we undertake during the day. When we're sitting, to be aware that we're sitting. Walking, aware that we're walking. Standing, aware that we're standing. Lying down, aware that we're lying down. If we could maintain mindfulness just of those postures, it would serve the purpose. Cultivating this foundation of mindfulness, that is of the body, is a tremendously integrating aspect of the process because it enables us to carry the practice over into every aspect of our lives. Everything we do, this body is here with us. Can we pay attention to it? Can we actually be with the experience of it? When we're mindful of the body, we drop into the awareness of the different elements of it. You know, the element of heat, or cold, or vibration, or sensation. Hardness, softness, pressure, lightness, tingling. All the different sensations that we feel. When we're mindful, that is, that penetrating attention, we penetrate through the illusion of density, of solidity. As an experiment, when you get up from the talk tonight, and do the walking, and go through the different activities that you do, you might pay attention to the body, 
pay attention to the experience of simply moving and touching. Now we think we do a lot of different activities of putting our clothes on and washing dishes and brushing our teeth and standing and sitting and all the different activities that we do. But all of those are really concepts describing different aspects of the sensation of movement and the sensation of touch. If you can bring the mindfulness down to that level, you see that the solidity of the body, that sense of the body as being self, as being I, begins to dissolve. Now what we are is simply, in the physical plane, plane for the most part, sensations of movement and sensations of contact. It's interesting to pay attention to our experience from that perspective. There's much less identification with that than when we identify with the body or particular parts of the body. So that's the first foundation of mindfulness. All the physical elements, the physical sensations that we experience. The second foundation of mindfulness plays a critical role in understanding how deeply, we, how deeply conditioned we are in our lives, what the driving force in our life is. And that's mindfulness of feelings. Feelings not in the Western psychological sense of emotions, but feelings in the Buddhist terminology of experience being either pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. This is of critical importance because when we pay attention, when we're mindful, that is a close and penetrating awareness to our experience, we see that it's pleasant feeling which conditions desire, which conditions craving. Why do we want things? Why do we crave? Why do we cling? Because of the pleasant feeling in a sight or a sound or a sensation or a thought or in an emotion. We keep going for the pleasant. It's unpleasant feeling which conditions resistance of one kind or another, of aversion, of dislike, of annoyance, of irritation, there's an unpleasant sound and the unpleasantness conditions the pushing away. There's an unpleasant sensation, it's the unpleasant feeling which conditions the tightening or the contracting. By becoming mindful of these feelings of pleasantness or unpleasantness, we can begin to decondition those driving forces. Instead of the habitual pattern of reaching out and craving what's pleasant and pushing away what's unpleasant, it's possible to drop back or to settle back into the moment, experience the pleasant, it's not closing down to it, it's to open to the pleasant feeling, to see how that comes and goes, to open equally to the unpleasant feeling without being conditioned to resist it simply being open, the mirror-like wisdom of the mind, reflecting what's there in each moment without clinging, without condemning, without forgetting. The only way to break the pattern and the power of that conditioning first is to see it, to really see for ourselves that that is what's driving us, and then to become mindful of the feeling quality. We make the pleasantness the object of meditation, or we make the unpleasantness the object of meditation. And it's that deep attention, attention with care to the feeling that allows us to experience it without it conditioning the mind to some reaction. Mindfulness of feeling is just at the heart of the practice and what the Buddha taught. 
plays a very crucial role in understanding how our lives are unfolding, the conditioning forces in our lives. There's mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of feelings. The third foundation of mindfulness is mindfulness of the mind. Mindful of the angry mind, the happy mind, the sad mind, the greedy mind, the generous mind. The mind and all the different qualities or emotions or moods that arise with it. This is important for us to develop in our practice because even when we are able to observe and become mindful to some extent of the physical elements, of the postures of the body and the different sensations of the body, still very often we become identified with the particular mind states that are arising. Even when we have some distance or some power of observation with the body, much more subtle are these moods or emotions with which we identify. Reflect for a moment on what it feels like when you're feeling very sad or very angry or very excited or very depressed or very bored. Are you able to see that mind state simply as the arising of different mental factors at a particular time or is there the identification with it? I'm feeling sad, I'm feeling happy, I'm feeling bored, I'm feeling interested. When we're not mindful of the emotions, when we're not mindful of these mental states, it's easy to reinforce the sense of self, the sense of I. So it's, it's an essential area to include in our meditation practice. mindfulness of the body, of feelings, that is pleasantness or unpleasantness, neutral feelings, mindfulness of the mind and all its mind states. The fourth foundation of mindfulness is mindfulness of the Dharma. And what this means is that we begin to understand or we become attentive to how different aspects of the mind function. As an example, when we become aware of desire or anger or sleepiness, we're aware of them as being hindrances in the mind, hindrances to concentration. We become aware of the factors of enlightenment, of mindfulness and all the rest I'll talk about tonight, and we become aware of them as serving a particular function. Mindfulness of the Four Noble Truths, of the Eightfold Path. All of this is included in this fourth field of awareness, mindfulness of the Dharma. The first, the first factor of enlightenment is mindfulness. Paying careful attention to every aspect of our experience to the physical elements, to the feelings, to the mind states, to the principles of Dharma. The second factor of enlightenment, which is born out of mindfulness, it comes from mindfulness, is called investigation of the Dharma. And that's the quality of mind which probes and explores. It's the wisdom factor in the mind. In the Tibetan iconography, the Bodhisattva Manjushri is the Bodhisattva of wisdom and he's depicted holding a big sword in his hand. And it's the, it's the sword of discriminating wisdom, the sword which cuts through the knot of ego, which cuts through illusion. That's this factor of mind, investigation of the Dharma.
When we begin to investigate, when we begin to explore, what is it that we see? What is this discriminating wisdom? Through the power of close attention, and that's the secret to the investigation of bringing the mind close, touching the object of experience, we begin to understand not only the content of what, it's, what is happening, but also the process. Not only what's happening, but how it's happening. And that step back from content to process is a very important step in the meditation. As an example, we're mindful of the sensations of each breath, of thoughts, sensations in the body, different emotions. And in the beginning we note each one as it's happening. At a certain point of momentum of noticing, the mind starts to understand or to experience not only what, it's, what it is that's happening, but even more predominantly the fact or quality of change. We begin to be more tuned to the fact that experience is changing than to what it is. And this change becomes so noticeable, the refinement of our perception becomes so finely tuned that we begin to experience or to drop back into the level of microscopic momentariness. Mostly because our minds are filled with concepts and ideas and stories and judgments and reactions and resistance and clinging and craving and all this extra stuff that we overlay on experience, we don't allow ourselves the possibility of dropping back into the moment with stillness and opening to the momentariness that's happening all the time anyway. It's not something that the meditation creates. And it's in that sense that we don't reach out for anything. Rather, it's a settling back and quieting down so that we're able to experience things as they already are. Seeing the change on this fine a level has an enormously powerful deconditioning force. Because when we experience change moment to moment, instant to instant, within one breath or one rising movement, it's not one thing. The rising, rising movement of the abdomen or chest, a thousand different sensations in that rising movement, or in the in-breath, or in the out-breath, or in a sound. We hear a sound, it's not, one, it's not one experience. It's a current of vibration. It's a current of changing sensation. Can we be mindful enough and investigate it closely enough to fine-tune the awareness. When we're perceiving on that level, then we see very deeply that there is nothing that's possible to hold on to because everything is changing momentarily. So even if we want to cling and want to grasp and want to be attached to, we see the impossibility of it, because things are dissolving all the time. So that's one aspect of the investigation, to actually investigate the truth of impermanence, the truth of change, not by thinking about it, because then it remains only our concept, but actually to drop into the moment with stillness and with that investigative mind, Investigative in this sense means a careful looking or a careful listening. So we see the impermanence, we see the continual change. We also begin to see something that we don't like very much to see, 
And that's what in Pali is called dukkha, the suffering, the unsatisfactoriness, the insecurity. There are different aspects to understanding dukkha. One obvious one is just all the painful things that we experience, whether it's painful sensations or painful emotions. It's one relatively obvious quality of the unsatisfactoriness. There are other qualities of dukkha which are important to begin to understand and open to. One is the sense of the endlessness of this process. What is it that we experience? We experience sight, color, we experience sound and smell and taste and bodily sensations and mind objects. Does anybody experience anything else? Sight, sound, smell, taste, bodily sensations and mind objects, thoughts and images and feelings. How many times have we seen and heard and smelled <coughs> this endless process going on? One image that has come to mind in practice at times, it's the image of being a prisoner of knowing. In each moment, the knowing of one or another of these six sense objects, which we have known endlessly, and stretching endlessly into the future. To have that sense of the incompleteness or unsatisfactoriness of it being born out of the impermanence, the fact that each moment arises just to dissolve in that instant. And so there's no possibility there of coming to a place of rest, of coming to a place of wholeness or fulfillment, because it's continually dissolving. This insight as with the insight into impermanence, opens up a whole new space of mind because it allows us, or we begin to free ourselves then from attachment, from grasping, from desiring. It allows us to settle back into the flow of impermanence, to become one with the flow of changes without trying to hold on to anything for security. Seeing the impermanence, the dukkha. There's one comment I'd like to make about dukkha. It's one of the things I like talking about the most. And the reason is that my observation has been that those people who are most open, most aware of the dukkha, of the suffering, of the unsatisfactoriness, are the ones who are the most joyous and the most happy and the most spacious and the most light. And those people whose minds resist the dukkha are the most contracted and the most tense. Because here's something that is such an essential part of our lives. If we spend our life pushing against it or denying it, then all of our energy is caught up in the denial of something that is inescapable. And it makes for a very tightly contracted system. When we open to it, when we allow for it, when we see, when we see it, then there's a quality of dancing with it. And the Buddha is known as the happy one. And people, you know, the great teachers who have come, are all enormously joyful and happy because of their understanding of dukkha. So I think it's important to understand that that's where it goes. The opening to suffering doesn't make one gloomy and heavy and 
dull and gray, but rather it opens up a space of tremendous joy and tremendous happiness. Insight into impermanence, insight into dukkha. The third insight is the insight into selflessness, which comes out of the investigation of the Dharma. Mostly we refer all experience back to oneself. My body, my pain, my sensation, my thought, my emotion. We refer it back to a sense of I, to a sense of me. Through the investigation of experience, we begin to allow ourselves to be with each moment's experience just as it is, without adding the concept or the attitude of I or mind to it. Next time you have a thought, probably shouldn't be too long. <laughs> See if you can be mindful of the thought, investigate the nature of thought with the sense of the thought is the thinker. There is no one behind it who's having it. The thought does not belong to anyone. Rather, the thought has the function to think. The thought is the thinker. Do you have a sense of the freedom that comes when we no longer identify with our thoughts? Our thoughts drive us nuts. Because we identify with them, not because of the thought. 
But each one that comes by, we either buy into and like and enjoy or resist or judge or a whole range of complicating factors in our lives. We're playing with ghosts. We're playing with phantoms. They're these wisps of words in the mind. But because we have not paid careful attention, we haven't investigated the nature of thought, so we get caught up in these dream worlds. One of my favorite lines from Munindraji, the thought of your mother is not your mother. The thought of something is not the thing itself. It's only a word or a couple of words in the mind. To see that, to begin to see the selflessness, the emptiness of all phenomena. Thoughts, feelings, sensations, they don't refer back to anyone. They are just what they are. The power of investigation is the second factor of enlightenment. The third factor of enlightenment is energy or effort. Without arousing the energy to be mindful, to investigate, nothing happens. We simply play out the old habit patterns of our mind, habit patterns of conditioning. What is the effort? What is right effort? What is the energy? It's the energy or the effort to be attentive. It's not the effort to get something. It's not the effort of reaching out, trying to change anything. It's the effort to settle back and be awake in each moment. As you're listening to this factor of enlightenment, of energy and effort, do you understand the tremendous relief in not having to change anything, not having to become any other way? That the whole practice is a settling back into being with what is. It's a huge burden off. We don't have to be struggling. The practice is ultimate relaxation. Because it's not trying to alter our experience. It's simply settling back and opening to it. Where it gets tricky is that we often don't like our experience. And it's the not liking it that then makes us want to change it, and we get all tied up in that struggle. Our experience as it unfolds is fine. Whatever it is, it's pleasant, it's unpleasant, different mind states, different sensations, nothing has to be changed. It's simply the effort or arousing the energy to be there for what's arising by itself. It's very, very simple. This is a quote from Karmapa, great Tibetan Rinpoche, who, who whose 16th incarnation recently died, and probably will be back. He said, if you have a hundred percent dedication and confidence in the teachings, then every living situation can be part of the practice. You can be living the practice instead of just doing it. The difference between living the practice and doing it. Living it means dropping settling back into each moment as it presents itself and being there for it, investigating it, being mindful, seeing what's there. What's the nature of thought? What's the nature of the sensation? 
What's the nature of the breath? What's the nature of frustration? What's the nature of anger, of sadness, of happiness, of loneliness? Each experience as it comes is fine. Just to be with it. Mindfulness, investigation, energy, or effort. The fourth factor of enlightenment is the factor of rapture. And believe it or not, as you practice, it begins to come. This quality, what rapture means, is the quality of joyous interest. To actually be totally interested in what's going on. In the beginning of practice, people often struggle with boredom. You know, sitting and being with the breath, or lifting, moving, placing. It's boring. But actually, when you begin to understand boredom, when you investigate the nature of boredom, you discover something very interesting. That boredom doesn't have to do with the object. Boredom is not a quality inherent in some objects and an interest in other objects. Rather, boredom has to do with the quality of the attention. When the attention is careful, then there's interest. When the attention is half-hearted, then there's boredom. Boredom is lack of attention. Which is why as the attention, as the power of mindfulness gets stronger, this boring breath becomes totally fascinating. And you can sit for hours watching each breath as if it's the greatest delicacy. It is the greatest delicacy. It's your life. I mean, this... <laughs> Rapture is the quality of interest. As you said, and... And it's wonderful talking to this group because so many of you have done so much practice and it's like talking to a field of understanding. <laughs> it's true. You may not perceive it that way subjectively. <laughs> Something else that arouses the rapture in the mind or it's a function of the interest is the investigation and appreciation of how our minds work. Now, there's such a tight web of opinions and ideas and attitudes and beliefs and reactions it's like when we begin to take a look at our mind we see that Almost the whole mind space is filled with this tightly woven web of ideas and concepts and reactions. But the investigation into that, just that careful inquiry, okay, what is it that's happening now? Begins to make space in the mind. We begin to extricate ourselves from the web of opinions and ideas and reactions and judgments and evaluations. And as we extricate ourselves, that is, not identify with all that conditioning, we begin to find a tremendous space open up. And in that space, there's a quality of joy, a quality of interest that begins to pervade one's mind, one's body, There are whole books, in fact, I, there are several volumes written about the different qualities of rapture that can arise in practice. That quality of joy, that quality of interest. It's the quality of beginner's mind.
There's mindfulness, there's investigation, there's energy, there's rapture, there's calm. Calm is the fifth factor of enlightenment. Calm means the mind which is free from wanting, free from craving. To give you a sense of the coolness of calm, I'd like to have you do a little experiment. The next time that the mind is caught up in craving or desire or wanting, pay careful attention to it. Feel what it's like. Feel what the desire is like. What, feel the texture of it or the color of it or the energy of it. And then pay very careful attention as the calm, as the desire changes. It will be there for however long it's there and at a certain point it's going to end. See the difference. At that point of transition, notice the difference in the quality of mind when the desire is there and when it's not there. It's quite a striking insight because often we associate desire with excitement and pleasure and happiness and you know we we get off on desire because we don't pay very careful attention to it and if you see it especially relative to the absence of it you will feel i think the tremendous sense of coolness and calm and relief when the desire disappears so just investigate that for yourself to see what that's like and you'll get a sense of what calm means. Calm means the coolness of the mind free of wanting, free of desire. Mindfulness, investigation, energy, rapture, calm, concentration. Concentration is the steadiness of mind and it's, it's one of the factors which takes a fair amount of practice to develop and cultivate. But when it is, when we have access to levels of concentration, it gives the mind tremendous power. It's like, it becomes like a laser beam to cut through all the different levels and layers of our experience. Concentration takes effort. It's not going to just drop down. But it has to be a balanced effort. Otherwise, we just get uptight and struggle and tense. The key to developing concentration is continuity. Be continuous. You know, we have ten days or nine days left. It's a precious time. You know that. I mean, our lives are busy and they're full of a lot of work and activity. You have this time just to be carefully continuous, noticing every moment, every activity. You'll see the concentration develop very quickly. If you spent one day making a note of everything that you do, every experience, every movement, in one day, you would experience a tremendous deepening of your power of concentration. And it's not difficult to do, it just takes a commitment, it takes a willingness to do it. One suggestion of working with concentration, which I found, I found in my own practice, one of the greatest disturbances to concentration is visual distraction. Our minds are pulled out, our attention is called out to our eyes a lot. When, when I was practicing in Bodh Gaya this, a year ago in January, I would do the walking meditation on the roof of the building and get really into the walking and careful and noticing. And I'd get to the end and I'd do my turn and on every single turn, I would look up and kind of scope things out, back then, lift, move, place. And I was just watching that, the strongly conditioned tendency to be pulled out through our eyes. It be, 
was very helpful to me and is to many people if we restrain that sense door. Just really to keep your eyes downcast, not to be not to be called out through the eyes. You'll see that the concentration develops more quickly. The last of the factors of enlightenment is equanimity. Basic, basic quality of mind in practice. That balance of mind, which is allowing for whatever's there to be there. It's painful, it's pleasant, it's happy, it's unhappy, it doesn't matter. Equanimity takes it all in. Equanimity is the quality of impartiality. The one fundamental principle in practice, which I would like to... If you can let these words enter into your mind deeply, it will save you a huge struggle. And that is, it's not what's happening that's important. It's how you're relating to it. The key to practice is in how you relate to experience, not in making experience one way or another. Equanimity is the true relationship to experience. Can we be with whatever it is that's arising? And it can be the whole range of emotion, it can be the whole range of physical phenomena, of thought, a lot of judging or comparing, whatever it is that's arising, it's not what's happening that's important. It's how we're relating to it. To relate to it with openness, with evenness, with simple presence of mind. These factors of enlightenment, three of them are arousing factors, three of them are tranquilizing. That is, energy, investigation, and rapture awaken the mind. Very energizing ones. Calm, concentration, and equanimity make the mind tranquil and even. The two together bring the mind to the perfect balance. Mindfulness is what calls all of these factors of enlightenment to the moment. In every moment of mindfulness, we bring or we cultivate all of the other factors they come along. And so if you can't remember all seven, remember one. Be mindful. Do you have any questions? Did you mention how to use these factors in a meditation if the mind is very aroused out bring it more tranquility? The best way to work with these factors in the meditation practice itself And it's a useful it's a useful practice to do is to become mindful of the presence or absence of each of them. In other words, sometimes just to kind of run through the mind, is mindfulness present, is it absent? Is investigation present or absent? Is energy present or absent? You know, rapture, calm, concentration, equanimity. You don't have to... Mindfulness itself will bring them into balance. And so you don't have to do much conscious balancing. Right? If you're mindful of what's present and what's not present, you'll find that the mindfulness itself will bring about the natural balance. Is there really any difference between a neutral feeling and, and no feeling at all? There never is no feeling. Feeling is, a, is one of the common mental factors, which means that it arises in every moment of consciousness. So, in every moment, there's always the quality of it being pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. 
relative to pleasant or unpleasant, you could think of neutral as being no feeling, but it's actually a neutral feeling. There is another way of saying that would be neutral means that feeling which is neither pleasant nor unpleasant. My, my understanding of neutral feeling is that it supposed to, supposedly leads to forgetfulness, yet it seems like when I'm being most mindful, I often don't have a sense of pleasant or unpleasant, it's just the sensation, and yet I'm not going to be forgetful of that because I'm mindful of it. Usually I think you'll find that bodily sensations um, usually have the quality of pleasantness or unpleasantness, but it may not be to the extreme that uh, the pain or the pleasure is really um, predominant. As an example of a neutral feeling, Mostly bodily sensations, I think, uh, fall within the realm of pleasant feeling or unpleasant feeling. Uh, an example of a neutral feeling w- might be if you have a thought, the light is on. It's not, it's not a pleasant thought, it's not an unpleasant this thought. It's just neutral. <laughs> If you want to explore in greater depth the feeling quality, please go see Munindraji. Because all of this is explained very in great depth in the Abhidharma, and he knows that stuff. As you were talking about effort uh, of the two kinds, there's a compulsive effort towards a goal, and the other effort. What uh, popped into my mind was the intention of awakening. What do you think of that word? Uh, that I thought. It's a nice thought. <laughs> I would, to make it most powerful, I would use that idea of the intention of awakening being the intention of awakening in the moment, awakening to the moment's experience, rather than putting too much energy in projecting the awakening into the future. And then it becomes a very powerful thought of of awakening. As I was giving this talk, I realized that There was a lot I wanted to say about each of these factors, and I saw the time going by, and so I started to compress things. One part of energy and effort, something that that comes out of, uh, is a kind of reflection on what's called in some traditions the reflection on the precious human birth. Do you have a sense? Uh, do you have a sense of how quickly our lives are passing by? I do, <laughs> and it's like each year seems to get faster and faster. And just seeing the ephemeral nature, the ephemeral nature of experience, of the speed at which we go through our lives. That reflection can bring a sense of urgency to the practice. You know, that it's not appropriate to postpone this awakening of the mind, the awakening of awareness. And so it might be a help to you, even briefly, just to reflect on that, to arouse the sense of, okay, here's a time and I'm going to do it as impeccably as possible. Which doesn't mean that the mind's not going to wander, you know, go off. But what it does mean is that there's a commitment to just every time you're aware that it goes off, you come back again. We were talking about um, 
pleasant sensations and unpleasant sensations. It struck me that the way I understand human motivation a lot is in terms of compulsive activity as a form of self-avoidance. And a lot of times it seems that people are pursuing things that aren't really that pleasant, but that they're trying to make believe are pleasant in order to avoid what's happening in the moment, like the smoking cigarettes or overeating doors, which didn't seem exactly to fit into your model. Or at least it involves some kind of interpretation. No, I think it's quite, I think it's quite the same thing, that the movement towards something can be either because of the pleasantness of it or as an avoidance of something that's unpleasant. You know, and so I think what you say is accurate. Often we move or the, our compulsive behavior is motivated by a sense of avoiding some aspect of our experience that we don't want to be with. So, unless I misunderstood you, I don't, I don't see. For example, I, I do massage, and one of the places I work at uh, is a fat farm. And I'll have, I have these conversations with, with these women trying to lose weight, and they'll convince me, they'll try to tell me that they eat because they just enjoy it. And I try to convey to them that really they're avoiding their own to own experience, that that's one of the primary motivations for their compulsive breathing. And Maybe it's both. Well, it's, it's, I don't know, from my own experience, and I think I've even heard, I think Jack, when he talks about the eating meditation status, usually in the beginning it's pleasant, and then it kind of it becomes mechanical when you really overeat. It's just that some way of using that model to convey that sense of what I'm talking about seems too stark for what you said. Either it's pleasant or it's unpleasant. It seems, I don't know, I just didn't get enough of a sense of subtlety. Of what? No, a sense of kind of subtlety. It just seems to be rigidly defined to fit my experience. Okay, as I say, as you describe that experience, I don't, I don't hear any difference. Um, what I'd suggest is for all of you is to take a very careful look. You know, this is this is part of the investigation of the Dharma to see when we're reaching for something, when we're desiring something, when we're going for something. What is that about? What's motivating it? When we're resisting something, to see what that's about. What is it that we're resisting? You know, and so not to get caught in any particular model of it, but to actually see for ourselves, in our own experience, what the conditioning forces are.